0: It depended on the kindness of strangers. All right, so he's not a regular rat or, or even a super rat. He's just a scared little mouse, that's all. I've had two years to grow claws, Mother. Jungle red Hello! And welcome to the first episode of the third season of The Real Woman, a podcast about all things cinematic. I am your host, Emmanuel Perryman. My first guest this season is John Ahler. Mr. Ahler is a lawyer, journalist, and the author of six books that range in topic from Wall Street to the Revolutionary War and the Gilded Age. However, it is his first book, published in 1997, that we will be discussing today. The book is a biography of screen legend, Jean Arthur, entitled, Jean Arthur, The Actress Nobody Knew. And it was hailed by film critic Leonard Maltin as quote, an exceptional piece of work. I'm thrilled to be welcoming Mr. Ahler to the podcast today. Hello, Mr. Ahler, thank you for joining me.
1: Hi, thank you.
0: Now, for those of us who love classic cinema, Jean Arthur is a name synonymous with screwball comedies of the 30s and 40s. Uh, She did westerns and dramas, but she's mainly known for for comedies. What was your first introduction to Jean Arthur?
1: I think I saw, when I was in my uh, early 20s, probably, uh, the more the merrier. I think that was my first experience watching her. And um, I was quite impressed with that.
0: Uh, So can you tell us how the book came about? What was it about Jean Arthur that drew you to want to write about her as opposed to, say, Myrna Loy, who was another comedian of the day?
1: Yeah, um, a couple things. One, um, there really had never been a book about Jean Arthur. I think there was one... um, Major book about Myrna Loy when I started this. Um, and so it was kind of virgin territory. And secondly, she was, you know, sort of a reclusive Greta Garbo type person, of which few people knew much about her. So I figured I had the feel to myself. Plus, plus I just liked her as an actress. Um, so those factors really um, led me to, uh, to
0: her. Uh, in reading your book, one thing that I re- that really stood out to me was that there were three people, two actual people and one fictional, who had an, a major influence on her: Joan of Arc, Peter Pan, and King Arthur. Uh, could you tell us why those those three were so important to her?
1: Yeah, well, Joan of Arc definitely. She was um, she played Joan of Arc on stage. It was one of her lifelong ambitions. Um, uh, Peter Pan, definitely. I mean, those two were probably neck and neck in terms of her uh, admiration. King Arthur, I don't think was really a major um, person for her. I think it was, she just uh, supposedly borrowed his name for her um, for her name, but I don't think she had any special uh, attachment uh, to him. It was just more of a romantic uh, idea to... To take uh, Jean d'Arc and turn it into Jean, that was that was legitimate, and then I think that Arthur just came from you know romantic uh, um, folklore. Um, but definitely, Peter Pan and of Park were stood shoulders above any other two icons that she um, really uh, followed and admired.
0: And what was it about Peter Pan, for example, that she admired so much?
1: I think his youthfulness, his nonconformity, his refusal to grow up—I think she was always a child at heart. Um, and uh, uh, yeah, his um, his willingness to go his own way—that was very important to her. And, and then that's, that's very similar with Joan of Arc. Um, you know, did what she her conscience dictated, rather than what people told her to say and think and do.
0: Now, could you tell me why, what the origin of your title, The Actress Nobody Knew? Because of when I think of, of Jean Arthur, I think of someone who was incredibly popular in her day.
1: Yes, um, I actually took it as a, as a variation of an article that appeared on her in, in her day. I, I don't know what the exact year was, 39, 40, somewhere in there. And it was, um, the, the magazine article, it was a long article, in I think Collier's or something. And and it was entitled The Actress Nobody Knows. Uh, and it went into her you know, reclusiveness, her, her refusal to do publicity interviews and the like. And so I kind of just adapted that to The Actress Nobody Knew. I, I didn't mean that they didn't know her as an actress, because she was very well-known in her day. But her private life and her personality, her true personality, were... Unknown to the public.
0: In fact, uh, it, it, you had written that she was actually compared to Greta Garbo?
1: Yes. Yes. Um, the American Garbo, I think someone called her. Uh, if anything, she was maybe a little even more reclusive than, than Garbo. Um, but they did meet once. <laughs> I think I talked about that in the
0: book. Yes. She seemed to be very afraid. <laughs> yes. Yes, and she
1: ran. She delivered something to her—a gift. Some a friend of Garbo's gave her a gift to bring to Garbo, and it was wrapped in a box with a ribbon. And she handed it to Garbo. I guess this would have been when they were both living in New York, and um, she stood there and, and watched while Garbo opened it, and it was some sort of very uh, expensive jewelry. And. I think Jane's eyes kind of, you know, bulged. And Gar- Garbo, Garbo looked at her and said in her, you know, her accent, you know, if I don't you mind your own business, you know. So, <laughs> so then she turned around and hightailed tailed it out of there.
0: I would too. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I just, I find that her being so elusive very interesting because she really had the image of being a kind of every woman. I mean, almost like a female Jimmy Stewart. You know, he, she. Yes. She. I feel like the general public saw her as kind of one of their own.
1: Yeah. Well, she usually played, you know, quote working girls. You know, secretaries, um, office girls, uh, maybe maybe a reporter from time to time. So you know, she would never played like a very. Um, refined, elegant, uh, you know, rich, heiress type. Um, she was always kind of plain and, and um, you know, I don't know if a girl next door is the right term, but she was um, a girl Friday, I think, Yeah. Was her milieu.
0: Also, one of the things that I, I really found interesting in your book was that I hadn't realized that she had started in silent pictures because she's so known for her voice and for her such a unique voice.
1: Yes, and I think she had some concerns about that when they went to talkies, but it turned out to be an asset for her. Uh, She spent how many years, she started in her first silent picture was 1923. And I think she continued to make silence up until the late 20s when the switchover came. So she was, you know, six or seven years in silence, and she made a whole bunch of them. Um, And, you know, most of them weren't that good. Some of them were these, what they called odors, O-A-T-E-R-S, you know, little Western 15-minute films, which... uh, It was was very hard, it was a hardship on the actors to go out in the desert and, you know, film these things. Um, uh, But she did a a whole bunch of those, and then she did some kind of schlocky silent films. There were a couple decent ones in there. I think one was, she was with Louise Brooks and Jean Harlow in um, The the Saturday Night Kid, where she met her husband-to-be, Frank Ross. Uh, that was a popular um, film, or that, or, or that? No, that. that I'm, I'm sorry. Saturday Night Kid was Clara Bow and Jean Harlow, and, and Jean Arthur. Uh, Louise Brooks was in the Canary Murder Case. Um, so, but she did. So she worked with those icons when they were icons, and she was yeah not. Uh, um, and she did okay in those, but she really came into her own. I'd say beginning with um, the whole town's talking in 1935 with Edward G. Robinson. Uh,
0: and and he had a I'm sorry, who the director was? John Ford. John Ford. Edward G. Robinson had a wonderful quote about her voice. Could you could you yeah. tell us what uh, that was? I'm
1: trying to remember which one it was because there've been so many. Uh,
0: it was something about uh, peppermint.
1: Oh yeah, like like crushed peppermint if if peppermint were crushed or something
0: like that you know. yeah and as you've said there's there have been so many attempts to sort of describe her voice
1: yes like a thousand tinkling bells I think was one of them that, that might have been Capra's description uh, but it would range from very high to very low kind of a and it was often called uh, throaty or croaky um, Almost like a frog's voice uh, at the low low end of the scale, um, but yeah, that was you know that's the thing she's you know probably best known for by the
0: casual uh, viewing public. And and she really was able to use it effectively. I mean, it's one thing to have a a sort of unique voice, but she seemed to really know how to. Manipulate it. Yeah, she could turn it on when she was excited.
1: She could really turn on that kind of squeaky part of the voice. And when she was in a quieter moment, she could go to the lower octaves. Um, Just seemed to be, I don't think it was a studied thing on her part. I think it was intuitive. Uh, She just kind of knew it. I think most of her acting was intuitive. Um, uh, It came from somewhere within her. And I'm not sure she even understood where it came from, but it, but it was there.
0: Now, one of my favorite movies that she's in is actually one that she that didn't always get the best notices for, which is Only Angels Have Wings from right. 1939. Uh, yes. And in your book, you said that was not actually a great experience for her. Could you talk a little bit about that?
1: I think she felt that Cary Grant was a scene stealer. And I think I, I don't think she took very much to Howard Hawks, the uh, the uh, director. I think he said once that uh, Jean Arthur was the only actress he ever directed who he doesn't think he helped a bit. Um, and um, she did have kind of a interesting relationship with Rita Hayworth, who was, that was one of her early films, and. Um, I think they, they ran into each other in the dressing room once, and um, uh, I forget which one of them said it to the other first, but one of them said to the other, you know, you're really shy. <laughs> and the other one said, yeah, you're really shy too. And uh, so they didn't really have much interaction, but they recognized their their um, shyness in each other, which was you know, very different from what they portrayed on screen, I thought she was good. And uh, you know, some people said she was miscast, perhaps a little bit. But that was that was the high of her her fame in, in around that time. So she was definitely box office um,
0: material. And just to give people listening now who may not be familiar with her, who would you compare her to in terms of popularity in her day? Who would you compare her to now? I mean, would you say she's sort of like a Jennifer Aniston in terms of popularity, or...?
1: Um, that's hard to say, but I would, I would say maybe an Emma Stone.
0: Okay. Um,
1: Emma Stone plays kind of ordinary characters, uh, you know, everyday, down-to-earth characters. She's never a, you know, she's not a diva type. Uh, neither, was, neither was Jean. Um, so that, that, that one, she comes to mind.
0: Okay. Okay. That's I, I. think that's great, Emma Stone. Yeah. Now, her only Oscar nomination was for the movie that you saw, said that you saw her in, which was uh, the More the Merrier. Right. What I thought was very interesting was that she wasn't nominated more, and and that there have been people since who felt that she should have been nominated. Uh, could you just give a little background to that movie and and that nomination and why you think maybe she wasn't nominated more?
1: Well, she had a reputation in the press as being uncooperative. I don't think she was well-liked by the press. Um, the uh, Her studio, uh, her, her main studio over the years, Columbia Pictures, I don't think, um, she had difficult relations with the head of the studio, Harry Cohn, and so I don't think he went out of his way to promote. Back then, you know, the studios had a great deal of power in determining who got nominated, and who won, and I don't think they went out of their way to um, uh, aid her career, at least nomination, and award-wise. I think by the time she got to more the merrier, now this is, you know, really at the tail end of her career, when you think about it. 43, and she retired in 44, um, only to come back a, a few years later for a couple films. But, but, um, so sort of at the tail end of her career, I think it was, it was finally almost just on Merit alone. They recognized that this was the, you know, maybe the culminating performance of her comic career. And so, you know, they almost had to nominate her for that. Um, now she didn't win. I think Jennifer Jones won for the Song of Bernadette. Um, Ironic because she was either, I don't know if she was married at the time to David O. Selznick or just seeing him, but um, he promoted uh, Jennifer Jones for that. And um, you know he had at least one time in the 20s, the silent era, uh, dated
0: Dean Arthur. Interesting. Very interesting. Now, it seems like in her career that uh, she really had two directors, George Stevens and Frank Capra, who really, she did her best work with and who really seemed to just work well with her. What was it about them or their style of directing that you think just worked well with her?
1: Well, in Capra's case, I think he was, um, you know, he was kind of a populist, um, everyman uh, film director. Uh, you know, he worked well with uh, another couple of uh, everyman, uh, uh, Jimmy Stewart and, and um, Gary Cooper. And so I think her her uh, image as a everyday girl, you know, meshed well with Capra and his message. Um, in Stephen's case, I think she was just very comfortable with him personally. I think she once said he was like the best cop, best cup of coffee you ever had. He was soothing, he was gentle. She did not She did not take well to, I'll call, dictatorial, um, bombastic directors. Um, she worked better with people who just kind of, you know, treated her gingerly, let her do her thing. And I think that's what uh, Stevens did. I don't think he did a lot of directing of her. Um, I don't think she took the direction that well
0: which is what Hawks was trying to do more of
1: yes yes he would say he would say do this do that and and uh, she just wasn't having it and then she had particular troubles on stage when she had a you know a marquee director who thought that he could really um, shape her performance and she didn't did not take well to that uh, one the, the most prominent example was some. Um, Harold Clerman, you know, a very famous director back then, uh, but he had his own ideas of what should be done, and and, uh, he directed her in uh, St. Joan, the Shaw play, and they did not get along at all, and she finally left that play as she left several plays when she, um, you know, wasn't, uh, didn't feel things were going
0: well. And she really had a, had a kind of breakdowns with her with uh clerman i mean she really he pushed her to the limit
1: yes yes and she she that's a good risk she had a breakdown and just kind of left but she she had breakdowns um in you know a few other plays too uh she um i don't know if she ever broke down per se on peter pan but she did leave the production at one point um and uh, finally came back to it but um but that was a tenuous situation for, forget the i think she just said she it was the summer and it was hot and air, you know, theaters were not really air-conditioned back then and she just felt physically exhausted she said and um, dropped out for a while And they were going to, because she wouldn't come back right away. The Actors Equity decided, you know, she should be punished, the role taken away from her. And um, I think she got a call. She she said, oh, actually, it's in uh, Shirley Temple's memoirs. Uh, They were considering Shirley Temple to replace her, and and Shirley called Jean, or maybe Jean called Shirley. I don't remember which, but and. um, Jean said to Shirley Temple, don't take Peter away from me. Um, And uh, they did, you know, she came back after a couple week uh, break. Uh, But then she had another major breakdown in um, the mid-60s in the uh, production called The Freaking Out of Stephanie. Lake, where she just kind of stopped in mid-performance, sat in front of the audience, and told them how she just couldn't go on. This was during a matinee. I don't think it, I don't think the, I don't think ever got past the matinee stage. Uh, Maybe one, maybe an opening night or something. But um, yeah, and she would usually, and then same thing happened on um, uh, first Monday in October, which was very late in her career, in uh, 1975 which was written specifically for her um, by uh, Jerome Lawrence, who had also written *Inherit the Wind and other you know, very uh, popular shows. Mm-hmm. And uh, he wrote it with her in mind, and they had the previews in Cleveland. They were going to bring it to Washington, D.C. Uh, Mel- Melvin Douglas was, the, uh, was her um, leading man in that. And again, I don't think she made it out of rehearsals, maybe, maybe again, one or two performances and then she dropped out, citing um, sore throat or stress or anxiety or something like that. She seemed to, She and she admitted that she did not respond well to stress, which again goes back to why I think she got along with the likes of George Stevens, who did, didn't try to dominate her.
0: Right, right. Um, Now, just jumping back to the beginning of her career, I thought it was very interesting. She really didn't, when she did speak to the press, she was not entirely truthful about her beginnings. Her birth date changed, her place of birth jumped around. What What was that about? Well,
1: you know, she was actually born in 1900 in Plattsburgh, New York, which is far upstate New York, just a few miles from the Canadian border. I think that's where she picked up her fluency in French because uh, they, they speak French up there as well as English. She always said, uh, first she said she was, at times she said she was born in 1908, other times she said 1905, and she said she was born and grew up in Manhattan, I think a, c- a couple of reasons. I think she thought from a, from a standpoint of becoming a Hollywood actress, it was more glamorous to say that you grew up in Manhattan than in this little town, right. almost, almost rural town in upstate New York. And uh, secondly, I think there was something in her childhood. I, I don't think she, I think she was, um, something happened to her in her childhood which um caused her for the rest of her life really to uh, shun her relatives from her first few years of life and um and uh she kind of repressed her whole you know i'd say childhood and teenage years um and i you know i had different theories on that but i think i think something happened it may have her father was kind of a Alcoholic and wayward, and he would leave and come back. They moved around a lot, um, and uh, she didn't really have any um, center of gravity geographically. Um, I just think she she wanted to forget her the first eighteen years of her life, and so she kind of made up this story that she grew up in Manhattan. Now she did she did live in Manhattan later, uh, around age. 1718 um, uh, for a few years in what's now called the Washington
0: Heights area yeah yep I'm familiar with it
1: yeah I mean at the time it was kind of a rural um, residential um, you know all-white area you know today it's much more mixed diverse and it went through it went through a tough patch in the 80s and 90s with crime and cocaine. I think it's come back now to, well, you know, Ben Manuel. Miranda made a uh, play and now a film about it in the
0: Heights. Yes. So it's
1: it's much more, it's much safer, more um, uh, respectable um, than it was in the 80s and 90s. But it's, uh, you know, when she would live there, it was much more sparse. Um, this would have been in the early 20s. Um, it was, you know, far uptown for New York. Uh, but yeah, she uh, she definitely wanted to forget her whole childhood and teenage years.
0: So just to sort of start to wrap this up, for someone who is not familiar with her, uh, who would like to sort of start their journey of Jean Arthur, what three movies? Uh, would you say would be the best movies to start with? And do you have a favorite Gene Arthur film? Um, well,
1: the th- two, of the, uh, two of the three, I would say, um, would be Mr. Smith Goes to Washington and The More the Merrier. Uh, the third, I think there are a lot of uh, candidates for, and I'll name two or three uh, that I uh, would put in that third category. One would be Easy Living, 1937.
0: Yes, that, I love that movie and that's when I thought she should have been nominated for.
1: Yes, yes, that was, that may have been her best pure comedic role. I would say, you know, a lot of people named Shane, now she wasn't the major character in there but she was, played an integral part in that movie and that's probably, you know, quality wise right out there in the top couple of her, of her films. And then I would um, I would say uh, Mr. Dease Goes to Town would obviously be up there. Uh, the Talk of the Town with Cary Grant and Ronald Coleman is a favorite of many. So the, the, among that collection, but I think definitely More the Marrier and Mr. Smith would be the top two.
0: Uh, and do you have a favorite among those?
1: A, a favorite as a, a, as a film or f- of her performance? Either. I, I think the More the Merrier. It was her best performance and close to her best film. I would agree. I guess first impressions a strong part in that view of mine.
0: Right, right. Well, I want to thank you very much for for, uh, joining me today. This has really been wonderful, and I'm always looking to introduce Jean Arthur to more people.
1: Glad to be of help.
0: Thank you for listening to The Real Woman. Join me next time when my guest will be author Jessica Rainey. We will be discussing both the book and film adaptations of The Collector, starring Terrence Stamp and Samantha Egar, and Silence of the Lambs, starring Jodie Foster and Anthony Hopkins. See you next time.